The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast. I'm Claire Armitstead. And I'm Sean Kane. This week... Why is the world today the way we find it? Why is it not some other way? How is, how is our history and our own evolution and, and the, the course of civilizations? how has that been directed by, by the planet? Big questions from Big History with Lewis Dartnell, who suggests that if we want to understand ourselves, we need to look to the very makeup of the Earth. But first, it's the accusation that every good writer most fears, and there appear to be a lot of them flying around at the moment. Should we be concerned about an apparent surge in literary plagiarism? Or should we content ourselves with T.S. Eliot's line that immature poets imitate mature poets steal? Sean, can you fill us in on some of the recent cases? Yes, well, it's it's funny because basically I oversee a lot of the news that we write about books and authors at The Guardian. And over the last, I'd say, 18 months, but certainly the last six, most of all, we've seen a lot of stories revolving around plagiarism allegations. So whether it's sort of a more overt form of plagiarism where someone says, well, you've taken my story you know, word for word and done find and replace and change some character names, or whether it is something much more subtle, which is similarities between plots, um, which is much harder to prove. We're seeing both a lot at the moment. Certainly, we're seeing far more cases of authors pointing out similarities in a very, I'd say, very careful way without really accusing another author of deliberate plagiarism. But there's certainly a lot of authors coming out and wanting acknowledgement for the work they've done. So an interesting case that happened this week, there's a romance writer in America called Christiane Sarouya. She's actually a Brazilian novelist and she writes lots of romance books and one really big selling author in America whose name's Courtney Milan, she pointed out that a lot of sections from Sarouya's books were actually word for word sections from her own books. And this actually sort of spread like wildfire on social media and so people started doing searches using I think mostly the Google Books tool to go and find passages that matched other books and a whole bunch of authors started saying actually this part is exactly the same as this part and just names were changed or like word orders were slightly changed but the sort of metaphor that was very unique to that book would be used again in the exact same way and it's, it's a really interesting case because Saruya responded to these accusations by saying well you know this I know this looks really bad and I admire you all as authors but actually uh, it was my ghostwriter's fault I know and this is, this, is the, this is the part of it that actually does my head in is, is novelist blames an agency as sort of like mm. basically an off the peg ghostwriter so mm. it, she didn't even have a relationship with her ghostwriter so it's just like sort of ordering someone in ordering in a takeaway meal takeaway pizza you're ordering in a takeaway novel that's, <laughs> a, that's the problem and mm. I don't I'm sceptical about some of the, you know, the, the use of influence, the use of quotation. I think that all art, Picasso said all art is theft. All art is theft to an extent. Or you can say, as scientists say, we're on the shoulders of giants. But this is something different. This mm. is actually just sort of actually people who are too lazy to do the thing that they say they're doing for themselves. Yes. I.e., she's not a novelist. Well, that's the thing. She was never open before this time about using a ghostwriter or ghostwriters. We don't really know at this stage. And actually, me and Alison, uh, who's our main books reporter, looked into could we hire a ghostwriter to write us a novel? And we found some people that were offering to write us, you know, several thousand words for 40 quid. You know, we just had to give them an outline. And... 
it was sort of a, a real moral quandary where Alison went, we should do this. And I went, I don't know how I feel about paying someone 40 quid to write a, a few thousand words just to see what they come up with. But it, it's interesting that it is that easy. And she's actually named the service that she used to get this ghostwriter. And it, it is interesting, I think, because there's been a lot of conversation recently about various different scams that have developed online particularly affecting self-publishing and ghostwriting is one of them where people basically serially buy ghostwriters get them to write them books they put them all under one pen name which is not their own sort of a pseudonym then they invest money in click farming which is where you basically pay a agency to click on books and make them seem more popular than they are which then feeds into a sort of a cycle of feedback where people see a book is popular and then they click on it because they want to see why it's popular so then you click farming click farming that makes me actually does that make me feel queasy yes and it's such a sort of cynical way of writing a book and perhaps the end product is really enjoyable and perhaps that end product has no plagiarism maybe the ghostwriter was very talented but the person behind it all that is making the money has actually done no work they've outsourced it and it's that sort of outsourcing of creativity and that outsourcing of even your own audience by using a click farm that is quite concerning for people who are you know genuinely entering you know the writing sphere knowing that they're going to struggle to make money and knowing that it's quite a hard life and trying to do their best and then you see these cases where authors are being revealed to be doing this and you know, it, it's quite a hard thing to police because it's all under pseudonym. So even if you can find the person behind the pseudonym, what's to stop them from setting up another? Quite a few of these books are not what we would call high literature. They don't aim to be high literature. They're yes. sort of in mass genre romance often yes. market. Well, the thing with it, Saru is interesting in that she is actually published and that she has, you know, a quite a big readership for her books prior to this. So it's interesting that's happened with this, but we do tend to see these cases more. We see allegations about plagiarism far more with self-published books. Now, poetry, we see there have been some cases in poetry, and I think that that's in a way much harder because it's not such an industrialised process. Yes. And not so commercial. So you've got, was it Ailey O'Toole um, yes. back in December, who sort of outed herself by tattooing one of the plagiarised lines on her arm. Yes. Now that's either an act of sublime innocence, a proof of innocence, or it's something so brazen that, that um, it sort of beggars belief. Really. Yes. Well, it was, it was quite a strange case in that um, basically someone saw the line that she had tattooed on her arm and Googled it, I think, innocently just trying to find the poem that it had come from and then found another poem that wasn't written by Elio Tull that had this line in it and it sort of again was a sort of trial that ended up being conducted on social media where poets then started going through all her poems and sort of digging out things that were from their own and in this case I think it's interesting in that the poetry more often than not you know doesn't actually involve very many words so it was quite overt where the similarities were and actually we spoke to her when it happened and asked for a statement because you know legally we we do need to give her some right to reply and uh, she said as a writer myself I understand the importance of the written word and the creativity and ownership that goes into both poetry and prose that is why I sent an apology note to Rachel McKibbins who was uh, the the author of the line that was tattooed on her arm to let her know how truly sorry I am for having borrowed her lines, it was a mistake and I have learned a lot from having made it. And I just think that use of the word borrowed 
is a very interesting well, let's, choice. Well, let's just have a look at one of the lines, which was quoted in a, in a news story about this. So, so we have a, a poem by McKibben, which deals with childhood trauma, and it reads, Hell's bangled girl spitting teeth into the sink, I'd trace the broken landscape of my body and find God within myself. And O'Toole's, the poem Gunmetal, which was the one that, that brought all this to light, which was a prize-winning poem, reads ramshackle girl spitting teeth in the sink i trace the foreign topography of my body find god in my skin yes so the proportion of words i mean it is clearly mm. it's the same thing basically isn't it a few a few of the lines have changed yes and, and mckibben's was not particularly receptive to the apology that elio tool offered because in in her view and i think this is a perfectly valid view is that this isn't borrowing this is stealing but then you get back, to, if you go back to the case of Helen Keller, who mm. is, who, which is really interesting, which Alison Flood, our very clever news reporter, has sort of actually referred to in, in discussing this, who at the age of 12 was, was accused of plagiarism. And she said she had no memory of having read the fairy story from which it was taken, but she must have internalised it. Yeah, so um, it's, it's, it's quite a, a fascinating case. So she was 12 and she wrote this story, showed it to the adults around her. She's, she was a, a deaf-blind child showed it to the adults around her who really loved it and one of them advised her about the name so they they said how about you call it the frost king and she did that then it was published and she was really excited about that and then people started pointing out the similarities between her story and an earlier story written by an author called margaret t canby called the frost fairies so you've got the frost fairies and the frost king and it's such an interesting case in that she was 12 and also and deaf and blind. blind. So, so how she got this story, whether someone read it to her or not, she actually doesn't know how she... She admitted that it was fully possible that she had been read the story or somehow exposed to the story, but she herself could not actually determine when and how, which is such, such an interesting idea. So in that she was actually acquitted of any sort of plagiarism because... You know, she was upfront about the possibility of it, but neither her or herself could actually, anyone else could prove any link between her and, and this other story. So the, one of the whole problems with this plagiarism issue is that it is an issue with so many different manifestations, which, you know, span a massive range of cultural possibilities. For example, Shakespeare famously plagiarised from Hollinshead. You know, Graham Swift was accused of plagiarising from William Faulkner's As I Lay Dying. But in both cases, they were you could say they were, well, in Shakespeare's case, he just did lift stuff. But in Graham Swift's case, it was, an, it was a knowing homage. It wasn't, he didn't steal. Mm. And interestingly, um, in, in the news, we've had a lot of stuff about Dan Mallory recently. So Dan Mallory's book, The Woman in the Window, was published in January 2018. So he writes under a pseudonym called A.J. Finn. But there was a another book by a writer called Sarah A. Denzel um, called Saving Alice. And her book was published in March 2016. And there are an overwhelming number of similarities in the plot. So both of them revolve around an agoraphobic alcoholic woman. In Denzel's book, the character's called Hannah. In his book, it's Anna. Both of these women have lost a child and a partner through a car accident. And this woman blames herself which is not revealed for quite some time in the book. Both of them feature a new family moving in opposite to this woman's house. She becomes obsessed with watching them. She becomes convinced that the husband is abusing his wife and then befriends their adopted teenage child who, after gaining her trust, 
turns out to be the villain of the whole story. But can you, can, I mean, that's, a, that's sort of like an intellectual construct rather than words. Can you plagiarise a construct? Well, that's the thing that, that's very hard to prove in any sort of way. You'd have to prove, basically, that somehow he had got hold of this book, her book, before writing his. And actually, uh, his lawyers and his agent have gone to great lengths to prove that this is not the case. So the New York Times ran a piece about the similarities between these two books and said isn't this remarkable in a very careful way <laughs> uh, without accusing him of anything. But, I mean, he, he's been very upfront about acknowledging particularly Rear Window, for example. You know, it's a clear link to Rear Window. But he's been very upfront about watching that and actually having the idea just as he finished watching it. Or he also loves Gillian Flynn and Kate Atkinson's writing. So he's always been very upfront about those things. But then there was this very uncomfortable similarity between this book that came out two years before his but his his lawyer and agents actually responded to the new york times and said well actually we can show you that he submitted a full 7500 word detailed outline for what he was going to write in september 2015 and Sarah's book, she didn't start writing it till the month after. Yeah, that's so interesting. So it's the sort of thing that it's quite possible, perhaps they both watch Rue Window. Yeah, <laughs> you know, without getting woo-woo about it, you know, you do get stories in the air. Things, there is, mm. things do happen. And of the course, time. they're both sort of coming off the back of this huge boom in psychological thrillers, and there's this already established appetite for stories about women who are somehow unreliable narrators. So it's not like they're, you know, completely alone out in the wilderness by themselves and it's a strange coincidence it's just interesting to say how many similarities there are but it does touch on on an anxiety in the culture which is connected with the easy accessibility of everything mm. yes. <laughs> of information and uh, you know and I sometimes find as a journalist I'm you know I do use Wikipedia and then you have to be very careful not to just find yourself quoting Wikipedia yes not that you know Wikipedia is actually quite a reliable source but it's somebody else's words yes you have to be very careful about how you're <laughs> absorbing everything and, and uh, I mean Rachel McKibben's had a lovely line which perhaps is a good place to end on which is she said who are we if not our words mm. who are we if we're not allowed to tell our own stories I survived my own vanishing I arrived in my art and I think that is the, the nub of it there is a sort of genuine the artist occupying a genuine place in the culture who may be borrowing who may be you know paying homage to all sorts of influences and people and then there is their hucksters and we're inevitably so at the moment so unprotected against the hucksters because information is everywhere yeah well, next we'll hear some fresh ideas from Lewis Dartnell. But before we do, we just wanted to take a few seconds to let you know that The Guardian is editorially independent, so we are free to follow any story wherever it takes us. But producing in-depth, really meaningful journalism is expensive, and we want to keep it open to everyone. So we need to ask you for help. If you can lend a hand and help secure our future, then please visit gu.com forward slash bookspod. And you can find that link in the episode description. Thank you. Now, what happens when an astrobiologist starts writing history? Lewis Dartnell has written a book that essentially credits the discovery of Australia as being the fortuitous outcome of a spice trader taking a shortcut. Sean, how do you feel about being essentially the result of some people looking for nutmeg? <laughs> very, very proud. <laughs> we are, the Australians are very uh, invested in nutmeg. Well, it makes we, we love some nutmeg. It's a difference, it makes a difference to the convict joke, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I'm one of the South Australians that's always really annoying and goes, excuse me, we weren't a convict colony. <laughs>
<laughs> We're descended from gentry. <laughs> well, Origins is a book that comes out of the big history tradition. And it's a, oh, I, there, it's a tradition that goes back sort of 30 or 40 years at least. And there are lots of different definitions for it. But I think the most convincing one is a sort of smorgasbord of mm. different disciplines coming together. So it can be earth sciences, evolutionary biology, paleontology, physics, astrophysics, and they're crunched together. These evidence bases from all these disciplines are crunched together into a new narrative of what makes us what we are. And the positive thing about it is that you do come up with some quite startling insights, as Lewis Dartnell has done. And the criticism is that as history, it's not based so much on texts as on scientific evidence. Although Lewis Dartnell, interestingly, questions that because he was saying you know he's a lot of his evidence comes from peer review texts mm. well at the very least it certainly encourages a bit of long-term perspective on things which is perhaps no bad thing for these hectic times here's lewis talking to richard lee your book is filled with eye-catching examples of ways in which humanity has been shaped by the world we inhabit so maybe we should just start by sketching out a couple i mean for example how do rocks laid down across alabama georgia and south carolina between 86 and 66 million years ago explain voting patterns in the 2016 presidential election yeah this is one of the the more recent examples in in origins of how rocks that are millions of years old tens of millions of years old underlying our feet can dictate even something as kind of fluid and dynamic as, as people's voting behaviour. It's the most extraordinary span of time it, it really as well. Is. And, and there's a really lovely chain of causation, kind of a daisy chain of one thing leading to another um, behind this story. And if you look at a map of the southeast corner of the United States of America, and in terms of the voting pattern, it's generally a sea of Republican red. Apart from this really distinct, very sharply defined crescent of Democrat blue. So the question is, why on earth, what is what is behind this? And I guess literally why on earth are people voting Democrat on that particular arc-shaped line? And if you look at the geology that's, that's beneath people's feet in those areas, it's a particular age of rock from the Cretaceous period of Earth's history. So about 75 million years ago. And during that period of Earth's history, the sea levels were really, really high and the, the, the sea lapped up right through the middle of the, of the United States and laid down a lot of seafloor mud, which got buried and then was kind of roaded back out again to give really rich, fertile, dark soil, the kind of black soil, which is really productive of growing cash crops in. So in the kind of 1800s in America, you're trying to grow crops for making money. And often that meant cotton, because the Industrial Revolution was kicking off in, in Britain. They wanted lots of cheap thread, cheap cotton. And in 1800s in America, that meant basically slave labour. Cotton is a very fingery uh, crop to try to, to try to harvest, unlike something like wheat or, or corn. So there was a, an enormous influx of slaves from Africa to that region. And then even hundreds of years later, there's the densest concentration of African-Americans in that part of the world. And, and therefore voting on the whole for Democrat policies and ideals. So there's that chain of connection from politics today to the agricultural output, to the soil, to the rocks from 75 million years ago. I think it's an incredible example of how that, that kind of planetary processes that was often invisible, it's beneath your feet, can have such an enduring effect on, on the human story. Which you can still see county by county on the it, map. Exactly, yeah. So this is one of the pictures, one of the maps in, in the book. I, I spent a lot of time not just researching and writing the book, but doing a lot of my own cartography and, and making maps of features of the Earth, the terrain, and just overlaying different data sets, different kind of transparencies on top of it to show that connection between our world, the human world, 
and the kind of planetary forces behind it. And, and staying with voting, just for a moment, there's, there's another connection that you make that's relegated to a footnote. How did the narrow gorges and steep mountains of Greece foster <laughs> democracy? Yeah, so going back to the kind of very beginnings of democracy, so, so from kind of 2016 presidential election in the United States to the, the inception of democracy in ancient Greece, and the terrain in this part of the world, because of the Mediterranean and the plate tectonics going on, Africa is basically being shunted beneath Eurasia, and it's crumpled up all of these mountains along the north coast. And if you're on mountainous terrain, the kind of chariot warfare of the time in Mesopotamia isn't, isn't really relevant. So a lot of it was infantry, and they developed these hop-like formations of lines of soldiers standing alongside each other with their sword protecting the man to their side. The idea is that it was... That the terrain dictated the style of warfare, which dictated this mentality in society of kind of every man protecting everyone else. This kind relying of on each other. Relying upon each other, which then kind of bled over into the political sphere of, of people standing together as a society, of this, this political system where everyone is involved, or, or at least if you're a man and not a slave, you're involved. So there's <laughs> still a long counted. way to go since. Well, exactly. <laughs> They're head-spinning stories, which, as, as you say, span these vast stretches of time and space. But... Yeah, so it's kind of a big history book. Sort of yeah. right, right? A big history book written by a scientist about yeah, yeah. the planet as, as, a, as a character in our story. But uh, how do you make sure that they're not only just so stories how do you go about putting evidence to these to these tales well i mean that that's as i say, as a scientist that that is my bread and butter you can't just say something which is interesting something that sounds right you've got to demonstrate that it that is true at least give evidence for it so there's something like 400 references in the back of the book and everything that every story i've told i've gone right back to the primary publications and journals that have been peer-reviewed that put together different pieces of the puzzle as i as i tell that story because often there's uh, there's a distinction that some critics try to make between, uh, the, as it were, the evidentiary sciences, sciences you can go out and do an experiment yeah. for, you can go and burn something or measure something <laughs> on a voltmeter. Someone enjoyed their chemistry lessons <laughs> at school, didn't they? <laughs> uh, th- burn kind of... it, burn it fast. <laughs> the sciences you can burn, and then the yes. sciences you have to kind of construct in terms of what happened in history. Exactly. And, and with history, we, we only get one history. History is a lot like astronomy in that sense. You can't go out and poke a star and change something to see what effect it has. You can't have another big bang. No, exactly. You've, you've, so history and astronomy are very similar to each other. Um, in that you can only look at the one example and then try to infer things or constrain things um, based on, on, your, on your best evidence as to why it's this way, not another way. You, you can play around with kind of speculative history or alternative histories, and, and I have a little bit of fun with that in the book. But throughout Origins, it's all coming back to the, the kind of evidence and, and the bedrock, and again, in a literal sense of why is the world today the way we find it why is it not some other way how is how is our history and our own evolution and and the the course of civilizations how has that been directed by by the planet and we've talked a lot about plate tectonics but there's a huge amount of of the kind of atmosphere that's had an effect on 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 our story and particularly with the age of exploration from the, the late 1400s and kind of through the 1500s european sailors were heading out west trying to kind of build these trade routes, these spice routes. And in doing so, they're piecing together little bit by little bit these grand circulation currents, these circulation systems in the atmosphere, which give you the reliable bands of winds on the surface of the trade winds, the westerlies. So you could literally catch them in your sail. Exactly. And so there's something fundamental about how the air circulates on our planet that's dictated by physics that tells you where the winds are going in particular directions, which therefore dictates where the trade routes if you have to sail with the wind behind you on the whole, which then dictates the whole course of, of colonization and, and empire building 
just comes down to the physics of, of the atmosphere. The way that Spanish and Portuguese sailors worked their way gradually down southwards until they took off. Exactly, and could head back across the, the Indian Ocean. Australia was discovered by people who were following what was known as the Dutch Brower route, which was basically a shortcut across the Indian Ocean to, to get to the Spice Islands more quickly and therefore more profitably. And <laughs> one of the stories I loved, and I think it was just consigned to a footnote in the end, but you're bombing along the, the Roaring Forties, a band on the earth where the winds are particularly strong. And back in the day, it was very hard to know your longitude, kind of how far east or west you'd come. So you basically just have to hope that you make your turning, you turn back north at the right moment, and you don't miss your turning and just slam into the reefs off the coast of Australia. And that this entire western coastline of Australia is just littered with ships with that basically missed their turning off the highway, off the motorway that was the, of the, the Roaring Forties, getting into, into the spice route. Now these trade winds, to link back to our presidential election, these trade winds are the reason why there's people coming from Africa who are picking the cotton in Alabama or Georgia. Well, exactly. So this is the, the, the Atlantic triangle. There was a great trade triangle. It was almost like a cog in this economic machine of taking manufactured produce from industrializing Europe, and particularly Britain, taking it down to sell on the west coast of Africa, picking up basically human labor, stealing human labor from Africa, forcibly taking these slaves across to America, where, as we've discussed, that the soil was good and there's lots of open land for growing stuff, and then taking that raw material, i.e. cotton, back to the machines of Europe to make into the kind of textiles and, and the products that... So every kind of loop of this turning machine generated enormous profits for those masters, for, for the slave masters and the industrialists. And, and the a machine simply built out of the way the air works. In a, in a sense, exactly. That, the, the, the route behind the turning of, of that windmill, almost, you like, of, of the Atlantic trade system was the, the fact that the equator is warm and the, and the poles are cooler, and that drives these huge circulation patterns in the atmosphere. It's a terrible thing, the slave trade that, that was powered by these cells. But looking back a little further, you chart how the cycles of celestial mechanics opened up a window for modern humans to expand out of Africa around 60,000 years ago and drove hominid evolution in northeastern Africa, or how cyanobacteria split water to release oxygen <laughs> we breathe. As the pieces slot in over these vast scales of time, do you begin to feel a bit lucky? I, th I think we, exactly. I think one of the messages I hope that people take away from Origins when they've read it is in a sense, how lucky we are for the world that we have today. And that was very much the story I was telling in my last book, The Knowledge, about how the modern world works behind the scenes. And what I've, the story I've told in Origins is basically how we got there through history and how the earth has, has, has performed that process. But I very much tried to write a book that is simultaneously popular science and also world history. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's akin to Sapiens or Guns, Germs, Steel in that sense, but, but written by scientists and, and redressing that balance, I think, between the historical stories and the causes and the evidence behind them and, and why history was this way and not something completely different. But when you look at these pieces slotting into place, mm. do you feel like that's the only way it could have been or we're just that we're lucky that we happen to have the right things happening at the right time or do you feel that actually something else would have gone this way? I mean, if you look further afield, what does this say about the possibility of life around the cosmos? Uh, so my, my actual research field is in astrobiology. So I'm, I'm a planetary scientist come biologist and my day job is looking at the possibility of, of life on Mars, of bacteria on Mars, in terms of the planetary environment on our next neighbour planet on, on Mars and whether it could have supported life. And in a sense, Origins is an extension of that grand cosmological thinking. What is it about a planet like Mars that might support life? What are the different planetary features and forces on the Earth that drove our evolution, humans, as these exquisitely exceptionally intelligent and adaptable species of apes and have had that effect through history. 
And, and of course, the details of history would be different if you hit the, the refresh button, hit Apple R, went back to the beginning of, of the Earth and re-ran things through again. And let's say you had another human-like species, the, the, the plate tectonics would still be the same. The atmospheric circulation currents would still be the same. The way that metals are, are concentrated by volcanism would still be the same. So whichever intelligent species there was would still be directed by those same forces. They're, they're universal in that sense. But I guess this is the, the thing where the particularities of our history intersect with those larger forces. That's what I'm wondering. Reading the book myself, it made me feel there was a, a, a most extraordinary kind of chain of coincidence. And it could have so easily happened that there, there were apes hanging around, but there weren't intelligent hominids. Uh, or there were perhaps bacteria hanging around, but there wasn't necessarily multicellular life. What's your kind of gut feeling on that? So the evolutionary theatre where, where humanity or, or the hominins overall emerged was in East Africa and specifically the, the Rift Valley. So there was a tectonic fracture opening up and across the planet that created this special set of conditions where the environment was very sensitive to fluctuation. So there's this very tight coupling for the last five million years between the climate and the geography of East Africa, which created the conditions for an intelligent and an adaptable species to arise which, which because is, which the water the water may be there or may not in exactly in so this this was in particular about what are called the amplifier lakes on the rift valley floor so i grew up in, in east africa so in a sense my own childhood in kind of school in, in nairobi is very similar to our own childhood as, as a species it happened in the, in the same place and there were these amplifier lakes that either exist or don't exist and they, they flicker back and forth very very quickly on, on the timescale of the evolution of, of a species because that tight coupling between the climate and wobbles in Earth's orbit and tilt and the particular geography of the East African Rift Valley with its kind of high shoulders and, and ridges on either side. So it's this confluence of several features all in the same place all at the same time that created the conditions to drive evolution to make intelligence rather than any other adaptation to, to have survived. And I guess th this is the question, is, is it your gut feeling that that would have happened somewhere else at some other epoch if that hadn't happened to happen in, in, in East Africa? Or do you think that's a one-off event? So it's it's probably true that the first intelligent species to rise on a planet um, will probably also be the only intelligent species in that, that there's, like, the chimpanzees don't have a chance now of attaining our level of intelligence because, well, unfortunately, we're kind of chopping down all their rainforests and, and we've become dominant. So we're in the way. It's a winner-takes-all <laughs> kind of thing. So... Again, if you want to play kind of speculative history, if you were to rewind to five million years ago, stop humanity evolving or stop that magma plume beneath East Africa, plate tectonics would kind of grind on for maybe another 10, 50, 100 million years and the same situations would come up somewhere else. So I think that the evolution of intelligence is probably likely on an Earth-like planet, given that life has has emerged in the first place and become multicellular and you know all the things i talk about in terms of astrobiology of how likely is it for life to get started on a planet in the first place but most of the book i say isn't dealing with something four billion years ago but is <laughs> it's kind of our history and the first cities on earth in mesopotamia and what happened there and then the story of our exploration of the world and i say politics and how even that even our everyday lives are being dictated by the unseen geography and geology beneath our feet. You end with a vision of planet Earth at night with the streetlights winking out from New York City and Shanghai, the lights on fishing boats mm. twinkling up into space. It's part of the appeal of the kind of big picture history that you describe that it gets us away from the kind of day-to-day -day intrigue at Westminster or whatever's going on with <laughs> Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Um, I think every now and then it's useful to just step back a bit 
away from the nitty gritty of everyday life and, and kind of take a deep breath and let's say take take a wider perspective, take a kind of a deeper time uh, perspective on things. Because in one sense, it makes you appreciate all that we've got, you know, in, in a grand sense that, you know, we're kind of alive in the first place and we evolved, but also in, in a kind of more refined sense of the world that we live in and all that it provides for us in terms of metals, which I talk about. And there's a whole chapter on why we eat the food that we eat rather than anything else. And again, why we eat bread and toast and cereal for breakfast, again, basically comes down to kind of geological processes. And I guess this is, gives us hope that we can survive as a, a five-year event like Donald Trump or 10-year. Well, exactly. If, if, if looking at the deep time picture of the Earth teaches us one thing, it's that there's nothing new under the sun. Civilizations come and go, you know, economic recessions come and go. There's kind of hiccups, there's ups and downs. Um, and it's, it's having that bigger picture and not just perhaps thinking on the five-year election cycle that, that will enable us to weather these difficult times and, 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 and choose a direction to sail in while being buffeted around so much. Lewis Dartnell there talking to Richard. Sean, you've been off on a bit of your own research, haven't you, since <laughs> since hearing this interview? Yeah, so I, I really like just how he applies scientific thinking to history. And particularly, it was when he was talking about basically how physics has determined colonisation. So the boats would go where the wind took them and, of course... The wind patterns all over the world are shaped by physics. And so when he said that, I started thinking about this sort of little nugget of information that I uh, encountered about basically why San Francisco became a gay hub for queer and trans people all around the world. And so I went and put my Lewis Dartnell hat on and <laughs> went and did some digging. And it's really interesting because you sort of wonder, well, why, why did gay people gravitate to a particular city? And basically I've mapped it out and I'm certainly not the first person to do this but there is actually a really interesting way of applying sort of geography to this case so there was a gold boom in San Francisco which was sort of regarded as a frontier town prior to then so there was quite a lot of sexual freedom there because it was remote but then there was a gold boom in sort of 1848 1850 and so the population absolutely exploded but it was majority young men it was like 95 percent of the migrants that came to San Francisco were young men and so its geographical position in that it was quite removed from quite a lot of the surrounding cities and metropolises that it remained quite liberated from sort of too much moral policing. And then when World War I happened, there was this practice in the US called blue discharge, which sounds like sounds a horrible like a medical term. <laughs> <laughs> I went, when I first saw that, I felt very weird about Googling blue discharge um, on my work computer. But basically, blue discharge is a practice that was used by the US military and Navy, where they would basically weed out people that they believed were homosexual because they didn't want them serving. And they'd actually also use this for African-Americans as well if they decided they didn't want them serving. And it's it's a way of discharging someone that's neither honourable or dishonourable. You just uh, give them blue discharge. But because of this, it was kind of a way of being outed to your family because if you've left and you've gone to San Francisco, say, which is a, a port town, so where soldiers would leave from, if you go there and then have to go back to your home and explain why you haven't gone off to war they just they couldn't do it that's unbearable and so they stayed and so suddenly you had these huge populations of gay people in port cities so san francisco chicago and new york 
and they all stayed and they built their communities and then it sort of becomes a sort of reinforcing thing where it becomes a community that people know is there and they start going towards it and it expands but isn't that fascinating absolutely amazing yeah Yeah. and it's in it's geographical and it's that sort of way of thinking about the world that you sort of take these facts for granted and just assume that's the way things are but actually there's such a rich history into, into why these things have happened. Yeah. Well, I did my own little bit of biographical, autobiographical <laughs> research. Yes. And um, I, it's always been said that the reason I'm tall and have blue eyes, as do quite a lot of my father's family, is because we were um, the result of a Viking invasion, the Viking invasion <laughs> of the Yorkshire coast a thousand years ago. Explains your uh, your murderous rage as well. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. And, and my, my, my habit of nicking biros... <laughs> Definitely, You're coming ancestral. to conquer my desk. <laughs> <laughs> but but more recently, I discovered a relative in Latvia, and oh. uh, it turned out that because in Yorkshire and in Dundee, where parts of my family were, the jute trade was very important, and because of the trade winds, they went to the Baltics. It, the Baltic traders didn't go down the Thames to London; they they tended to go to the north coast. So nobody, what is wonderful about this is in this horrible Brexity time, nobody can take my Europeanness away from me. <laughs> I am Danish. And I am Latvian. Well, I, I <laughs> have Latvian, distant, <laughs> very, very distant cousins. But I mean, in Dartnell's, Lewis Dartnell's terms, that's what we're talking about. Mm. We're talking about the very distant being very, very pertinent. Mm. And I take great comfort in that. <laughs> so many thanks to Lewis Dartnell for giving us so much food for thought. Origins, How the Earth Made Us is out now and published by Bodley Head. In next week's podcast, I sit down to do possibly my favourite interview I've ever done for this show. I got to speak with the medical historian Lindsay Fitzharris and the historian Hallie Rubenhold about true crime, Victorian England and Hallie's new book, The Five, which is entirely focused on the lives of the women killed by Jack the Ripper. Sean, I begin to worry about you. <laughs> it's very gory. Get ready, everyone. <laughs> well, if you, can, if you can bear to think about anything else, do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts from and join the discussion on Twitter at Guardian Books or by leaving a comment on the podcast page. Can you map your personal or family history on the landscapes around you? From me, Claire Armistead. Me, Sean Kane. And our producer, Susanna Tresillian. Goodbye and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.